Inspired by a life event and by listening to the universe taking her where she was supposed to be, our next guest started as a music therapist and landed in the field of bereavement counseling. And for the past 21 years, she has stepped up every day to guide and to care for those who need a warm heart while they're in the grip of grief. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. Direct from Akron, Ohio, the epicenter of modern recovery. This is Recovery Talks, the podcast. From those in recovery to those working in recovery, meet those who are shining the light on Recovery Talks right now. So welcome, everybody, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. If you found us, you've probably gone by way of recoverytalks.org. And today, it is my special honor to have Jody Coulter here to, with me to speak. Jody is a bereavement counselor, bereavement coordinator, sorry, uh, and a certified personal trainer. And I wanted to have, for this series, uh, if you've been following me, I, you know that I've been doing a series of episodes on grief. Uh, some of it to cope with uh, some of the things that I've gone through this year, and also just a general feeling that what has been surrounding me in my universe. It seems to be something that that a lot of people I know have been asking me about and requesting podcasts about. And we're going to have, as you are listening so far, you'll see that there's many, many uh, episodes for this. But I wanted to have someone that deals with it on the front lines, someone that really understands what it's like to feel. And I just want to say welcome, Jody, for, for being here and sharing your expertise with our audience. Thank you. Um, your experience, uh, Hospice of Western Reserve Bereavement Coordinator for, is that right, 21 years? 21 years, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I've got so many questions about how you can work on the front line for so long and about durability, about, you know, how you process that. But before we get to that, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit of why this place for you? I mean, notice that before you were you were a music therapist, you went to music school like I did. How did you end up here? How did you end up in this place? Well, as far as the music therapy part, music was always my passion as a, as a young girl. Like I expressed myself through music all the time, never imagining I would ever be a music major in college, let alone a music therapist. But my passion was always for helping others. I come from an older family, so I'm the youngest of five in, a, in an older family. And I sat back and watched my mom care for my aunts and uncles and her mom. And I saw her love and her compassion for them. And I saw how they took care of one another. And I wanted to be that kind of a support to other people. In, 19, in the 1980s is when I became aware of hospice. And in that time, my grandmother, her mom had a stroke in which she was dependent on everyone. And the facility that she was in told my mother that if she didn't put in a feeding tube, she'd be killing her mother. And I said, mom, no, there's something called hospice and it's compassionate care and it's, it's better for grandma. But my mother went with the feeding tube. So my grandmother died a year later after being completely dependent on everyone and not knowing anyone. And at that time, I was finishing up my internship, starting my internship as a music therapist at a local hospital where I worked in oncology and adolescent mental health, spinal rehab, labor and delivery, and then later took a job at another hospital in oncology and adult mental health. But my passion was always this hospice. 
And in 2000, a position opened as a music therapist here at Hospice of the Western Reserve. And um, I took it. It was part-time, but I needed full-time. And I transitioned to bereavement uh, two years later. And it's been very um, fulfilling in many ways. I can sometimes use my art and I can use my music. In 2000, I need to share. 2016, I had the role the rug pulled out from underneath me. Like I've had a lot of loss in my life, but the rug was pulled underneath me when my mother experienced what her mother did and had a stroke. We decided not to go with any extreme measures and to give her a compassionate end of life. And she died three days later. And it's been life-changing. And I think people think, oh, you're a bereavement coordinator. Yes, I was doing this for 17 years and I know grief. But that changed my life forever. And it changed how I do my work today. Something happens, um, and I find it very common in those of us that, that seek to pursue a life where we can have the meaningfulness of helping others. Something deep happens to us. And it, it's a game changer. It's almost like the, the stain is set in. For me, it was my experience at St. Thomas Hospital and Detox where I was up late at night and I had had a conversation with someone and, you know, they turned to me and they said, Mark, you, you really helped me. And I sat back down in my hospital pajamas. Of course, I didn't know which way was front and you never really can tell with those things. And I, and I had this sense of a voice and I don't know if it was a higher power, my higher self, you know, my consciousness, my conscious, maybe the phenobarbital they were giving me. I don't know. But something said to me, you never could get sober because you never did anything to help anyone else. And so that was the paradigm shift for me. And I made a promise at that place right there that I wanted to be sober so that I could tell people how it worked, how I did it. And that really was the game changer for me, the meaningfulness of being able to say, look, you can do it. Here's how it works. Um, and you can't, you can't always tell people you know, what to do. You can tell them what you think and what you know based on your and experiences. You can be that example. I loved how when you and I spoke initially, you brought up being a lantern, being the light, you know, showing other people the way. And, and I think... Uh, I really appreciate that story because I know for myself in bereavement and the work that I do and life experiences and the losses I've had, that that is definitely how I got to where I am through experience, but also as a personal trainer, having been through my experience, again, living, walking the walk, it's walking the walk. Transformation is what we're talking about here. Right. So to and it's not easy. To pivot into grief, I think we've spoken a little bit about, I, I think, and our listeners are, are, are aware of what my year has been like. Uh, I lost a, a person that was very close to me. And then, you know, um, we, we lost a very close friend who I had been a bandmate with, who was very well known, but I didn't know him as that guy. I knew him as my friend, right? And because of that, my whole life was changed. And, you know, a lot of it left me thinking, I, I really don't know what to do with myself. I can tell you that the first thing I want to talk about is for those of us that may be listening to this, um, this podcast about grief with you as someone that experiences many people, you know, uh, how those first few miles Right when you first find the event or whatever it is that you've got to cope with, 
right? How do you get on the bus? How do you how do you get started? I've got a lot of questions for you, and I know it's only a thirty minute podcast, but we may have to go a little bit longer. But you know, how do you know you're in the position where you need help, and how do you know what to do when you first start? Because for me, I just spun around. Mm, 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 mm. You know, I mean, I, I I don't mind saying that. I mean, I got texts, I got emails, I got voicemails, I got Facebook messages. I got on a plane and went to Florida to walk a beach. That was the only thing I could do. I, I had to get out of my life. But what would you say to somebody that's listening to this podcast about what do you do when and how do you know? How do you know and what do you do when you first get started on that first few miles of dealing with grief? Well, I think the first thing to note is that grief starts at the time of any kind of a change. So it could be the change of a life experience. You could be given a diagnosis that changes your health. It may not be life limiting, but it's life changing. You might be given a life limiting diagnosis that can cause our grief. So when somebody's given a diagnosis, whether it's you or a friend, you start grieving what we already assumed our life would be. We lose our assumptive world. We lose our security and familiarity, right? So that is when our grief kind of begins. And and those are the feelings that we start having inside, the messages we hear inside. And then we start to mourn as we talk about it and we share and we express our feelings. So in the beginning, exactly what you described sounds so normal. We do the ruminating thinking. We get grief brain. We get forgetful. I I put my keys in the attic when my mother died. I couldn't find my car keys for three days. (laughs) People put the cereal in the fridge and the milk and the cupboard, the, the remote in the refrigerator. People do all kinds of things. We forget to sign our checkbooks. We get that grief brain. We don't know what to do with ourselves. I had a client once who said, I spent my days busying my hands, walking in circles. And when I caught myself walking in circles, trying to busy my hands, not I'm a multitasker. I'm like the Tasmanian devil. I spin all the plates. When I went through my tremendous grief with my mom, I literally would look at a pile and go, oh, this goes in that bedroom and walk all the way back. Oh, this goes in there. I couldn't. I couldn't even look at two items at one time. And what we need to realize is that is our grief. There's nothing wrong with us. We're not going crazy. It's not a, you know, a mental health diagnosis. You're not losing your mind. This is grief. This is the inability to fathom all the emotions we're feeling. Because there's so many different feelings and thoughts. Like suddenly we go to, oh my gosh oh my gosh, they're not going to be here tomorrow. Who am I going to talk to tomorrow? Well, wait a minute. We were supposed to do this in six months or we were supposed to do this in a few years. And what am I going to do here? And what am I going to do there? You know what I mean? We start to spin all those stories in our mind. And that's how our grief is. And some people will want to run. I got to get out of here. I got to sell my house. I got to, you know, I got to get away. I can't do this. Um, some people just don't know what to do. So they stay inside. Some people become anxious and don't want to go anywhere because the comfort is in the space. So honoring our grief where we're at is the first thing. Are there ways to talk about it? I mean, what from, and I can speak autobiographically because that's all I got, right? I just kept hearing people say, Mark, 
you okay? Are you okay? And, and that came at me from based on the personality and the relationship I had with that person. You know, I would look at them and go, you know, I, I don't talk to you. I don't know you. Why are you asking me if I'm okay? Because let me tell you something about, I'm not anywhere, anywhere close to that vicinity of that country of being okay. But you know what we say? I'm doing all right. I'm fine. And I mean, I'm fine. So, um, what would you say is, you know, are there guidelines? Are there things that you tell folks that are entering this grief process, which is a continuum, right? How do you learn to talk about it? Because I got to tell you, uh, and I, I'm pretty decent at communicating, but I, I mean, my first thing was stop sign. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't get in here. You're not allowed in here. You know, I'm sorry. And only a very few people that I talk to, what I would really say man, I'm messed up. You know, I don't know what to do. I can't stop crying. I can't stop crying. You know, I'll start one day I'm feeling okay. And the next thing I know, something will trigger and then my shirt's wet. You know what I mean? So how do you talk about it? And how do you tell people that they should approach communicating with others, what they're feeling and what they're thinking? I appreciate all that you went through. When you're someone who has, you know, maybe there are issues with trust or comfort, right? In, in dealing with your grief, we become more closed. So I think honoring yourself and who you are is important. Finding that person that you're comfortable talking to. You don't have to tell the world about it. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm opposite of you. I was very expressive about my grief. Everybody knew where I was at. I was very honest because it was the most painful thing I'd ever experienced when my mom died. Other times I'd be like, no, I'm okay. But this was real. This was intense. This was unexpected. Finding your your person that you're comfortable with um, is really important if you're a person who's not open to sharing. Being aware that other people can't tell you how to grieve is also important. You have to grieve where you are, right? Other people can't push us along. We can't go around it. We can't go over it. We have to go through it. And each of us is on our own timeline. And that timeline is nothing linear. It's always changing. And that's why we think of grief in this nice fine line, you know, and we go from one thing to the next and we have these really great days and, you know, a few days in a row. And then all of a sudden we're back at square one and we think something's wrong with us. But our grief really looks more like a plate of spaghetti all over the place. And it's messy and it's hard and it takes a long time. It's, it changes your life forever when you've lost someone as you know, close as your friend was to you, it changes everything. Just knowing that it's okay to feel the way you feel. So I would imagine that there are stages and processes of, of the grief. If you're helping people through bereavement, there's different, different parts of it. But how do you know when it is time for you to get help? I mean, there's a certain amount of normal grief that all of us can feel. And, you know, there's sadness and there's hopefully after a period of time recovering, but based on the nature and the density of the relationship, sometimes it just doesn't happen quickly. Sometimes as in your case, with such a significant relationship, your mom, who you were obviously very close with and you love, I can see it. Our listeners can't see Jody's face right now, but I can see it. She did this smile with the eyes, which is love and depth of caring. That's the real love right there. That, that smile with the eyes, that's really the love smile, right?
right? How do you know? I mean, at what point do you say, I'm not doing so well. I probably should get some professional help. Or is there just a, a place where you say, you probably should check in anyway. I mean, I tell people, you, you, you fall and you sprain your arm, you go to a doctor, right? You, you hurt your heart. Maybe you should think about that too. How do you know when, you, when you, the grief is not maybe moving through you in the way that it, that it, it would in, I don't want to say in normal terms. Way. Yeah, a healthy way. A healthy way. Uh, how do you know? Um, if you find that you're still stuck, you know, after six months down the road, you're you're still stuck in your grief. You're not going out. You're not reaching out. You're still crying every day. That's not, all of that is really not that unusual. But if it's really affecting your relationships and your life and you're finding yourself closed in, definitely. Here at hospice, when we have someone go through our care, we reach out to our families in the first month and we follow them for 13 months. So any family member, if if any of your listeners have a friend or a family member that's been in hospice, they can always call us and we can provide that support to them. If it's something bigger, I know we're dealing with, you know, talking with a recovery community. So always making sure you have that balance, you know, making sure that you have that counselor who's supporting you. But then we specialize in grief and we're not therapists, we're support. So seeking out a support group might be helpful, but I always encourage people if this is something that's really traumatic or or really a sudden death for you to speak with someone one-on-one before attending a support group because in that support group, you also hear other people's stories. And are you ready for that information? Do you have the capacity to hear what other people are saying? Because when you're deep in your grief, it's hard to take anything in. You just want to pour out what's stuffed inside we 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 curl up into this little ball right and and we just sit in our heart that aches so i you know i think it's always good to just kind of check in call somebody and check in say hey i just want to talk about this and then see where they're at if people that i'm supporting in their grief say i'm having a good day i don't think i need to come in i'm like we should talk on a good day absolutely right so then we know how to handle the hard days right So talking on a good day is just as important as talking on a bad day. So I I did hear you say that you have a comprehensive approach to family when someone passes. And I would imagine that it's true that people receive uh, and manage grief in different levels, different ways based on their personality sets, their experiences, the nature of the relationship with the person that passes, right? So as a family member, what do you do or how would you handle the situation where you say, yeah, we're all kind of having a tough time, but my brother is really tough and he won't talk about it and he won't get about it and we're worried about him. As we all know, we can't get well for someone else. We can't be more willing than someone else to improve their mental health. But what are the steps that a family member might take when they see that someone is really, really not doing well? And I'm thinking about a personal experience where I have a loved one, a family member that that lost someone and, you know, is by nature not very communicative about their emotions and their feelings, this passing really struck them. And it wasn't for many, many months that they shared, you know, I don't know what to do. I would not have guessed. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm sitting from across the street. I'm a family member. I've got somebody that I want to help. What, what, what are the steps that you could suggest that you do to help that person? 
I like that you said, yeah, we definitely can't help them heal. You know, we can't do the work for them. Sitting alongside someone and being present is so incredibly powerful. I've had family members call me, say, hey, can you check on my, you know, can you check on my brother? And he's just not talking to us, right? So I'll give a call. We can do that here in our work. But as a family member, sometimes it's things like saying, hey, let's go out for a pizza. Let's go for a walk. Try to engage them, not drill them about their grief, but have that time together of being present and sharing. They may not want to talk to the person, talk about the person who died, right? But say you're going out for a walk and you're doing something, you're just having a nice meal, and then the subject comes up. If someone is not open to discussing their feelings and talking about issues in the first place, that's not going to change in their grief. So you kind of do that backdoor thing. Hey, let's just, let's get together. You want to do something tonight? Want to go to dinner? Want to go for a coffee? And just spend time together honoring them where they're at and encouraging them, but not being too pushy because then that'll close them off to you even more when maybe you can open a door by just being present, holding their hand, sending them a nice card, just letting them know you're thinking of them. Sometimes I send my sympathy cards three and four months out because that's when the grief gets hard. You know, in the recovery community, we have this concept called holding space. Yes. And, and that means that, you know, when you're in recovery and you, you once you get into a long-term period of abstinence, then the reality really sets in and you start to see some of the wreckage that maybe you have caused, you've been responsible for. And there's a period for all of us, you know, where we're, where we're still struggling, maybe five to six months in, but we've got a good string going. And then you're really confronting all of the things that you've done. And that's the hard work. And that happens in grief. In, in respect to unfinished business, strained relationships, we all do the shoulda, woulda, coulda thinking after someone dies right? We all, I should have told them to go to the doctor sooner. I should have been there. I should have answered that phone call. I should have answered. Right. I had a really friend of mine who's a pastor say to me, he said, you know, a lot of funerals are much more about guilt than grief. You know what I mean? If I had only, why didn't I call? I should have been the last year. I knew, I, I wish I would have talked about with that time when I was a kid and I said that thing, I really didn't mean it. And I wish I would, all that stuff. But the concept of holding space, I think is important because, you know, for us, it's as simple as, you know, if you're a recovering alcoholic or an addict, uh, the loneliness is unbearable because you're disconnected from all your old network, right? positively disconnected on some levels, it's but, grief. You, but the loneliness uh, that you feel um, and not being able to say, you know, you, it's easy in the, in the community of the recovery or in the, or in the rooms, as we say, to admit and talk about, you know, the mistakes you've made because we're all the same. We've all messed up our lives in fantastic ways. You know, we're perfectly flawed human beings, but, but there is a place where just having someone who can just come and sit with you right? And it doesn't, you know, how about the tribe? Hey, did you get the new record? Something else, but the presence of another person in your company, um, it's not so much the heavy talk as it's just the, I'm just here. I'm just hanging with you. I encourage family members who say to me, what can I do to help this person? I feel so helpless. And I say, hold space with them. And then I have to explain that whole concept of, no, you don't get to talk about 
how many cars you crashed. Right. <laughs> no, right. you don't get to talk about, you know, how was your therapy appointment today? No. Right. You get exactly. to talk about sitting there and going, you want to go get a hamburger? Let's go. And that's how you walk along a friend in grief. You want to go for a walk? Let's do that. And you you just hold space with them for a while. And I, I can tell you from my own personal experience, those were the, some of the most valuable friends who understood that for me early on, who you know knew that I probably had had enough of talking about 12-step and this and all that. Blah, blah, I just want things to be normal. I did. And, and, you just want to move forward. And sometimes right. people don't want you to move forward. They keep you... Right, they keep drawing you back in. Where they're comfortable (laughs) with you being. Right, right, yeah. And sometimes in our grief, like people, people want to fix us. Right. They want to tell us what to do. They don't want to see us sad. They don't want to see us unhappy. They don't want to see us unmotivated. They don't want to see us not showering every day. They want to see us like they know we can be. Or you should do this. Who we were before, and we're not who we were before after we've had a significant loss. Right, right. That's enough out of you. We're gonna, we're gonna. It's time for you to pick up and get moving on. And okay, okay, yeah. That the, the tough love thing doesn't doesn't work in grief. We've progressed to the place where we've gotten through the episode. I mean, um, you know, we're dealing with our early feelings. Maybe we're in a few months. And I would imagine that there's triggers. There are places where, you know, you, for me, um, if I drove by a certain grocery store where I used to go um, get my booze every night, you know what I mean? That, and I hadn't been in that neighborhood for a very, very long time. You know, I literally had to pull over and cry because I realized just how much I had done to myself, how many years I had wasted, you know, and being the less than person that I wanted to be and that regret. But, you know, in the end game, that that being able to feel that and be able to let it go after it was gone was really cleansing for me. So I would imagine that that there are, are, are places in our grief, where unexpectedly we turn the corner and there it is again, you know? So how do you cope with that? What do you do there? When you think you got it, you know, you're good, you're good, you're good, and then you're not good. What happens then? You just let it flow, you know? Um, Talk about triggers, you know, my my mom's, my mom loved the tribe, Mm. avid Indians fan. And when they would sing Hang On Sloopy, Mm -hmm. My mom always thought it was hang on stupid. (laughs) And just a month or so before my mother had her stroke, my sister recorded my mom singing hang on stupid. So it's been all over our Facebook pages. Anybody who knows us now sings hang on stupid. And for the longest time I could hear that and I would just cry. I'd cry and laugh and do the O-H-I-O. So when you have your triggers, just allowing yourself to be in that moment and call it what it is. This is my grief. I'm feeling this because I deeply love somebody, yeah. right? Mm. There's going to be triggers in stores. There's scents. You know, all of our senses, you know, smell a chicken reminds me of grandma, you know. Yeah. Um, seeing that 
hearing that song, the music is so powerful, right? Yeah. It, it's yeah. so cleansing and at the same time so difficult. You know, we trust me, I, it hits me at three o'clock in the morning and says, get up and write this song for your friend. Yeah, and, I love that. And creative it's, hours. It's great, but it's also like, really? Yeah. It would be really great to sleep in a little bit right now. <laughs> and that thing is going, oh, oh, get up, get up, get up, get up, you know, yeah. and you, and you got to do it. So I guess to finish this, and by the way, for our audience, you've been listening to Jody Culture. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Oh, I mean, I, 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 I may circle back with you uh, for, some, for some, some more going down the road. And I, I just want to say on behalf of all the people, and I would imagine that there's more than you know, thank you oh, for what you welcome. do. Oh, because you. we don't always hear that, you know? Yeah. Um, I can tell you um, one of the most meaningful things for me was a letter that I received from somebody that I had helped who it was sent by their wife, by his wife, he had passed. And she said to me, you know, you gave him back the last two years of his life. I keep I that it. letter because it reminds me that, you know, there is something out there for us that really are trying to, to use what we've had in our hearts. And trust me, I tell people this all the time. I said, you know, the hardest thing for me to learn how to ask for help was because I was a person who needed help and knew what it meant to need to get help. And so I was always able to help other people. I wasn't able to ask for it for myself. You know? And that's so important in our grief too, to be able to ask for that help and not to be ashamed. There is no stigma attached to this. This is grief. We yeah. all experience it. Some people talk about it and some people don't. Yeah. Can I share can I share a quick lyric with you? Please do. One of my favorite lyrics. Please Songwriter do. Gary Burr wrote this country song years ago. Tell me what this song means to you. This song is the story is of a father and a son. And the little boy growing up and afraid his father's going to die. Like, what if I wake up one day and you're not here? So it plays through their life of being a teenager and him going off to college and he and his father not having a good relationship and or having different dreams, right? Mm -hmm. Different dreams. Right. But the bridge of the song to me has spoken to me since like 2004. Every person carves his spot Every person carves a spot and fills the hole with a light. And I pray someday I might light as bright as he. Wow. Um, Beautiful song. Um, no, that just, that the just, song is, that's my job. That's yeah. my job. That's what I do. Everything yeah. I do is because of you to keep yeah. you here with me. Yeah. Beautiful lyrics. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, I can't wrong. tell you what a joy it's been to be able to spend some time with yeah. you. And I want and I want to thank you in advance for all the people that will listen to this podcast to be able to go to a place to be able to say there is a way that I can get help from my feelings for what I'm going through. I'm not crazy. <laughs> uh, and, and this is, although it doesn't feel it, this is normal. What it what happens to human beings. And um, I just want to, again, thank you. Uh, everyone, we've been listening to Jody Coulter. And uh, if you like this podcast, please subscribe and download, uh, like and share and follow 
on all the uh, Rock and Recovery pages. And also you can, if you're here, you've probably found us through recoverytalks.org. And thanks for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes with more guests as they share their journey from the darkness into the light. And until then, everybody stay standing and steady on. Thank you.